Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Hi, I'm Mo, the producer of Deep Background. You're probably wondering why you're hearing from me. Well, Noah woke up this morning with laryngitis. Don't worry, he's fine. He just lost his voice. Today's episode of Deep Background is with Mark Oppenheimer. Mark is a fantastic writer and journalist who spent the last few years documenting the recovery of Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill neighborhood. Squirrel Hill is a historic Jewish neighborhood and was the site of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in 2018. Oppenheimer's upcoming book is called Squirrel Hill, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting and the soul of a neighborhood. And it comes out next Tuesday, October 5th. This episode is a really great one, and I know it's close to Noah's heart. The interview was taped a while back, so I'll let Noah take it from here. Mark, thank you so much for for being here. I admire all the different kinds of work that you do. I think of you as a public intellectual on religion and a reporter and a memoirist of no mean talents. But the thing I really wanted to talk about today grew out of my fascination when I heard that in the aftermath of the October 2018 shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh, that you responded by diving into the life of Squirrel Hill and that you're actually in the process of writing a book about the Jewish community there 
and it's healing. And I thought, what an extraordinary opportunity to talk to a chronicler of contemporary American Jewish religious life about something while he's actually doing it in real time. So tell me first, what gave you the instinct to get on a plane and go to Pittsburgh? Yes. Thanks for having me on. It's a it's it's an honor and I'm a fan of the show. So it's great to be in conversation with you. And I really I admire your work and thank you for having me on. My father grew up in Squirrel Hill and so did his father and his grandfather. And my family goes back in Pittsburgh into the 1840s when my great, great, great grandfather, Wilhelm or William Frank, was one of four Jews who got together to acquire land for the first cemetery, the first Jewish cemetery in Pittsburgh. And for Jews, you know, one of the first things you build in addition to a ritual bath is a cemetery. If you're if you're staying, putting down roots and you're staying in a particular community, you need a burial ground. So there were four Jews who in 1847 acquired land for the first Jewish burial ground in Pittsburgh. And as I say, my great-great-great-grandfather was among those. That's genuinely fascinating in its own right. I didn't know you came from that particular slice of uh, of American Jewish life. You know, I've always been fascinated by Squirrel Hill, and I'm really interested to hear that your family is actually from there. I have had just a large number of friends, teachers, and mentors who all grew up in Squirrel Hill in the 60s and 70s, who have sort of become incredibly prominent intellectuals. My, my colleague, Joseph Kerner, who's one of the leading art historians in the world, my colleague, Bill Rubenstein, who's one of the founders of the study of gayness in, in the law. Evan Wolfson, who ran the, the marriage project for many years, pushing gay marriage. Harry Littman, who went on to become a U.S. attorney for Pittsburgh. And they all grew up in Squirrel Hill. They all went to the same high school. They had the same high school English teacher. Your gut is correct that Squirrel Hill is something special. And it has been Jewish longer, I think it's safe to say, than any other American Jewish neighborhood. So Jews, like other human beings and like Americans in particular, like moving uh, from place to place. You know, we're always looking for the next frontier. And so most Jewish communities turn over after 30 or 40 or 50 years. The Jews in the neighborhood move somewhere else and another immigrant group or another upwardly mobile group or downwardly mobile sometimes moves into wherever the Jews were. Squirrel Hill has been a real exception to that rule. It's never been majority Jewish. It likely peaked at 40 or 45 percent Jewish. But it has been substantially Jewish since World War I, so 100 years exactly. And it is still the case that the that about 50 percent of the Jews in metropolitan Pittsburgh live either in Squirrel Hill or in one of the adjacent neighborhoods in the east end of Pittsburgh within the city limits. So that's also to say that unlike the Jews of Boston or Chicago – the Jews of Pittsburgh did not become an overwhelmingly suburban people. Half of the Jews are still within the city limits centered around the Squirrel Hill neighborhood. So it's a very, very interesting place in American and world Jewish history. So, Mark, one of the things that I'm trying to do on this podcast is enable people who don't, for example, write books to get a glimpse behind the scenes, not just talk about the book as a finished artifact, which we all like to do, but also to find out about the process. So I want you to lift the veil for us a little bit. You go to Squirrel Hill. It's after the horrible attack. What do you do on a daily basis when you're there? How do you go about creating a network of people? Whom do you talk to? Like, what do you actually do every day? Okay, I'm so glad you asked about that because I think it's really important to demystify the process that journalists and writers go through when they research and when they write. Uh, for me, in this case, 
it began with asking a couple people who I knew were from the neighborhood, who are the Jews who know everybody else? And who are the people who who will be happy to talk mm-hmm. about it, right? Like who are the local – the mayors of, of mm-hmm. Squirrel Hill, mm-hmm. right? Interestingly – this is terribly, terribly sad. Two of the mayors of Squirrel Hill were the um, mentally disabled brothers who were mm. murdered, Cecil and David Rosenthal, who really did walk around Squirrel Hill and pop in at storefronts and at the fire station. They knew everybody. But I was given some very good tips, and the same names kept coming up over and over again. You should talk to this person or this person. So I began with a list of about a dozen people, and I started flying to Squirrel Hill about once a week. I would either fly out of Logan Airport in Boston or LaGuardia Airport in New York City, and I would fly very early in the morning at 6 a.m., pick up a car, drive into Squirrel Hill, fighting the morning traffic into the city, and get to the neighborhood around 9 a.m., and then I would try to talk to five or six people. You were really doing these marathon days. You must have been getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's right. I was doing 18-hour days, and I did this 31 times in 16 months. And my wife was heroic and very supportive about saying this does seem like an important project. But the deal that I made with her and I think just as important with myself was that I was going to think of myself as not being a dad or a husband one day a week. So typically Wednesday Mm -hmm. or Thursday, I just didn't exist. And, you know, we – paid some extra for babysitting, and my parents helped out some who live in in Western Massachusetts. And my wife worked harder on those days and held it all together with the kids. But by the time everyone woke up the next morning, I was back home. (laughs) And so the question I went to Pittsburgh with was, how does a tight-knit Jewish neighborhood come together in the aftermath Mm -hmm. of tragedy? So I did have a sense that I wanted to get a couple hundred interviews at least, and I wanted people who were from all range of Jewish observance, uh, from the most observant Orthodox to totally secular. I wanted non-Jews, and I wanted non-white people, and I wanted people from all different parts of the neighborhood and the adjacent neighborhoods. But at a certain point, certain characters began to seem really, really interesting, and they seemed to for whatever reason, they seem to be on journeys that would be interesting to readers, right? How do these institutions, school, synagogue, public high school, um, supermarket, the Giant Eagle Market is where everyone sees everyone in Squirrel Hill, the Giant Eagle on Murray Avenue. So how do all these institutions bring people together to make meaning and care for each other in the aftermath of something really terrible? And some characters did end up encapsulating certain answers to that better than other characters. So there are people I began to go back and re-interview. Has anything really surprised you in terms of the overall picture of how does a community bounce back? I mean, it is the kind of thing where you must have had an instinct at first about what you expected. You spent a lot of time in communities, in Jewish communities, in urban communities. You have, as it were, a general sociological theory of how these communities do their thing. Right. Is there something that you found that really blew you away in terms of surprise? I mean, you could not be surprised and still write a spectacular book, but surprise would be interesting from the perspective of the listener, I think. Sure. We all know that life snaps back to normal pretty Mm -hmm. fast, but it still is really surprising to see. And I think this is a good thing. It speaks to people's resilience. But it is a little surprising uh, to see how normal stuff begins to feel again for most people very shortly after something terrible has happened. Now, this is something that's culturally conditioned, right? So in Israel, for example, when there's a bombing at a cafe in the morning, they sweep up the debris and they try to get back in and open for dinner because that's how they have to be as a culture because there's been so much terrorism in their past. And and you see that a lot in war zones that people can 
claw back a semblance of normalcy really, really fast. And then the American tradition is much more that we like memorializing things and we tend to hold on to our grief as almost a comfort a bit longer. And you saw both impulses in Pittsburgh. So uh, for many, many people, life returned to something seeming very normal very quickly, especially if they didn't know someone who was killed. Now, look, 11 people out of the 22 people inside the building uh, were shot dead. And and two of the other 11 survivors were wounded. Everyone knew somebody whom this touched yeah. on, right? But if you were a little bit removed from it, if you didn't have a close friend or relative who died or was inside the building, if you were one or two degrees of separation out, for a lot of those people, life snapped back to normal very fast. For some of them, actually, the guilt of not having been at synagogue that day plagued them forevermore. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Mm-hmm. 
this is a really fascinating angle that you're that you're pointing out. And you mentioned the American tendency to sit with our grief and memorialize. And you mentioned the the sort of Israeli approach, which tends to be let's try to get things back to normal as quickly as possible, partly for the ideological reason that the Zionist project is committed to the idea of bouncing back and and, and achieving right. normalcy. This was, after all, a movement that began with the goal of becoming a quote-unquote normal people, whatever that exactly was supposed to mean. But there's another option, which is that if you're in a place which has been seriously war-torn or seriously affected by terrorism much more consistently than even than Israel has been, you do get circumstances of repetitive trauma. You, you, there are communities that become just genuinely traumatized. And the option that you're describing, the sort of hybrid of the American and the Israeli, it sort of depends on being a community that doesn't think of itself as in danger for its very survival or in danger for its very existence, or at least that would be my, my hypothesis. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of luxury to be able to bounce back and think, this isn't gonna happen again next week or next month. You know, I, I'm scared, I'm upset, but I know that rationally we can we can get back to life being normal. And I wanna just first ask you, do you buy this hypothesis that in a way it's a kind of a privilege for a community to be able to say, we're bouncing back from a terrible tragedy like this one? I do buy that hypothesis. I do think that it's a privilege and it speaks to their sense that they can still be the ideal American Jewish neighborhood again, which entails not being a victim again mm-hmm, anytime mm-hmm. soon. I did talk to a couple people for whom the synagogue attack in Poway in Southern California, which was six months after the attack on Tree of Life, was, I don't want to say even worse, but it it was more painful for them because there was a way in which these couple people whom I interviewed had sort of bracketed Tree of Life as this one-time horrible exception yes. that was devastating but also An outlier, yeah. And a total outlier. And if there was another attack, and of course in Poway, what, one person died or two people died, but not 11. Yes. So that felt like, oh, here's a second one, a second attack on a synagogue. And then, of course, we have this sort of ongoing low-level pogrom in certain Jewish neighborhoods in New York City of people being punched in the face and attacked more frequently. So I think that that you're right, that the sense that we're back to normal, once it begins to feel a little bit shaky because other things start happening, then that's a whole kind of re-injury of people who thought that maybe they would be going on uh, pretty well. So that's a good segue into the, the 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 next question that I want to ask you and the topic I want to want to focus on now. There are lots of people in the American Jewish community now who feel that the Tree of Life attack was just one in a broader succession of violent attacks that they see as constituting a significant trend of anti-Semitic violence and that they associate among other things with the rise of anti-Semitism in association with Donald Trump's presidency. I am, to say honestly, mildly skeptical of the narrative of a big, new, significant trend that will fundamentally change the perspective of American Jews, but I also am open to being proven wrong about that. So let me start by just asking you where, where you stand on that. Do you think of Tree of Life as, you know, one of a growing number of anti-Semitic attacks or do you think of it as, to some significant degree, an outlier, not only because of its severity, but because we haven't seen an attack of exactly this type since? Well, look, in some ways, the big anti-Semitic attack, the 11-person shooting, like, for example, mass shootings across the United States, 
is always going to be an outlier. Thank God, right? I mean, when you're a country of over 300 million people, the 11 people shot here or even the 50 or however many mass shootings since 1999 affect a number of people that is pretty close to zero statistically, right? So that's in but some ways- But can I just push back, Mark? I mean, that, not, that is true, of course. You're, you're absolutely right about that. Right. Nevertheless, one would look since 1999 and say, for example, school shootings or even more broadly, institutional shootings are now a familiar right. part of American life. There's a script, we're familiar with right. it, and that's not only from the perspective of observers or victims, it's also presumably from the perspective of shooters. We even have a terminology yes. that goes with it. You know, we all know what the words active shooter means. You know, my kids know the words active right. shooter because they have active shooter drills in their school. This did not Ugh. exist when you and I were right. kids. So th there is a there is certainly a trend line there at the broadest level. It's a real thing. It's a real thing, right? I was just, I wanted to bracket it by saying that in some ways I was agreeing with you. That in, I think I was agreeing with you in that there is a way in which the the panic that all of a sudden we're in this new age of widespread anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic or white nationalist violence or anti-Semitic violence from the left or the right, that we have to be very careful where we look for evidence for that because the fact is not that many Jews, not that many school children, statistically speaking, have been victimized. However, Right. However, I actually don't think that's the most interesting way to think about it or the most useful way to think about it. I go back to my old undergraduate teacher, Paula Hyman, the great historian of French, Jew of French Jewry and of women in Judaism, who said to us in class one day, she said, one thing that's historically been true of anti-Semitism is that in the societies where it exists, it seems always to be cyclical, that it rises and falls and returns again which is not a pattern that you see as much with other forms of bigotry, which some societies put to bed forever, <laughs> or they rise occasionally, but basically they are blips when they rise or blips when they fall. But anti-Semitism has a very sine wave-like recurrence in the places where it exists, in England, France, America, also East Asia. It responds, it tends to flare up in times of stress, but it also tends to flare up somewhat randomly. And what she said to us, and this would have been in 1995, was we are at a low ebb for anti-Semitism. That's great. It's great to live through a low ebb. It will be back. And I think she was right. And she didn't have a great explanation for it, by the way. I don't think she had a well-worked-out theory. What she said is it will be back and then it will recede again. That is the nature of anti-Semitism. I think that's true. I think the tide has come in again for anti-Semitism. And it has various forms, but it has a kind of cultural currency right now for people who are inclined toward hatred or bigotry or ethnic chauvinism that it didn't have 20 years ago and that I don't think it will have 25 years from now, right? So that will then take many forms. And one of the forms for some people is a kind of white nationalist, eliminationist anti-Semitism where they want to kill us. And for some, and this is a little bit trickier, but I think just as important, it will take the form of an indifference or a downplaying of the people who want to kill us. I have so many questions that I want to ask you in connection with this. Let, let's start with the hypothesis that we're in an uptick, you know, or a return of the cycle of, of anti-Semitism. Isn't it at least possible that the quantum of anti-Semitism out there hasn't really changed since 1995, but that because of social media, our consciousness of it and its capacity to make itself known has substantially risen? So it does seem to me at right. least possible that what we're experiencing as a rise in the tide may in fact be a greater degree of awareness of what's been out there the whole time. And I think that might even be true, but that's conceivably also the explanation for the attacks on Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews, Haredi Jews in the New York area. I think it's entirely possible 
that these attacks have gone on all the time, but we're not necessarily being conceived of as distinctively anti-Semitic. We're not being reported in the same way. We're not being incorporated into a narrative and weren't being discussed on social media and other places in the same way that they are now. I'm just suggesting it's a possibility that seems consistent with the evidence. No, I think that's wrong. I mean, right. We never we never know for sure what goes unreported. Um, but the idea that that has that the level of anti-Semitic violence we've seen going on in New York City is nothing new, but simply this year got much more noticed. I don't think it's true. And what's more, I don't think the people in those communities think that it's true. That doesn't mean they're right. People can perceive that they're more endangered than they are and be wrong about it. But I don't think they're wrong. I mean, again, I actually think statistically speaking, it's still close to nil. So we're kind of talking about are there cultural vibes that we can't pick, that we can't reduce to statistics? And possibly not. Possibly there's this is all just noise because, you know, numbers wise, people still feel pretty safe. But the other thing I want to get to is your first question, which is to what extent is social media amplifying the general perception of anti-Semitism? Well, social media amplifies everything. And one reason I don't like it, one reason I'm not on it is I think that I tend to do bad stuff when I'm on Like I tend to amplify my worst thoughts when I'm on social media. And I think that it gives me bad information when I use it to get information. So, of course, that's true. I think all we can say to that is that there are People who do try to collect data and have tried to collect data since before the days of social media on attacks and on hate crimes and the the definition of hate crime has changed. As you know, there's now a legal regime around what's a hate crime and what's not. But certainly if you look at, say, the last 10 years when we've had, if not reasonably good data, at least reasonably assiduously collected data by people trying to do their best, both the FBI and the Anti-Defamation League would show that there's been a pretty strong Mm -hmm. uptick in Mm anti-Semitic hate crimes. That could be something as simple as a swastika being painted somewhere by people who might not even know the meaning, right? But that could still make Jews feel unsafe. But also, and this is really, really important, Jews right now of all religious groups are and have continued to be the most victimized in hate crimes. Jews are pretty regularly not only the most victimized in absolute numbers, but also given our tiny percentage of the population, the most likely to be victimized by some sort of hate crime. So we can quarrel with how those numbers are counted and all that. But to the extent we've tried to get data on it, the data really does support that we are in a moment where anti-Semitism is relatively bad, historically speaking. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. 
It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. You make an extremely persuasive case, so let me just concede it and then ask why. Ask the why <laughs> question. Do you have a right. Do you have a pet theory of why? And if so, is it connected to to Trump or to the rise of populism globally? Because it's also worth mentioning that the rise in anti-Semitic incidents is not merely in the United States, but is also measured globally. Well, the answer to that question depends on how far back we want to go, right? We could ask why is anti-Semitism always with us and there's some pretty compelling theories that I think generally have to do and, – and here I, I think the, the historian Yuri Sleskind has written very intelligently about this – with the Jews like some other groups of people being kind of itinerant cosmopolitan merchants who have lived in many, many countries throughout world history but have not always seen themselves as being of that particular country but more importantly have not been seen by the residents of those countries as being native to that country. And this has had to do with Jews having our own language, having lingua francas that native peoples don't understand. And of course, it's also been amplified by the anti-Semitism of both the Christian tradition and the Muslim tradition, right? Both of which have anti-Semitic strains in them that um, many, many, many of the current adherents really have tried to, to downplay, but that still are there. So there are reasons why, why anti-Semitism is always with us historically and seems to be in more societies than you would think, including those that have had very, very few Though the Jews. theory of Jews as now, the cosmopolitan other doesn't fit the United States very well, because Jews no, in the United States no, it doesn't from a very States. early period learned to speak English and integrate right, into a wide right. range of professions. I mean, the other, the, the sort of deep, the deep origins theory of anti-Semitism that focuses on uh, religious origins I think it's very plausible at a kind of grand scale explanation, but it doesn't work as well at the micro level to explain why now uh, as opposed to another time. And you mentioned Paula Hyman's theory, which suggested at least that it's actually random walk. You know, it goes up and it goes down. And right. if, if we think that the going up now has something to do with current circumstances, and one hears a lot of Jews on the left saying it's because of Trump, and one hears a lot of Jews on the right saying, to the contrary, that Trump is the most pro-Jewish president that the United States has ever had, and they are often conflating their conception of what counts as pro-Israel with what they think of as pro-Jewish, but nevertheless, that is a view that one hears frequently. So do you have a view on this particular debate that I think is right. roiling in the American Jewish community today? And, and let me add, by the way, that you are right that 
that deep origins theory doesn't always work particularly well or the deep origins economic theory doesn't always work particularly well in the United States and that there are other micro theories that account for a lot more of it so or, or that may account for a lot more of it. So, for example, Jews' historic economic success makes us targets when the economy seems uncertain or in times of turmoil and stress. So there are a lot of, of, of pieces at play there. To answer your question about the contemporary scene, I think it's useful to point out that the 1990s, when we were really in a, a beautiful era of, of just low levels of Jew hatred, of Judeopathy, as some say, was coming at the end of a period which was really a, a golden era for American ethnicities and micro-communities and subcultures, right? So after World War II, most of the barriers fell to Italians and Poles and, and German Lutherans and Jews and all sorts of people, white people who, who presented as white, I should add, who wanted to move out of cities into suburbs, who wanted to begin attending elite universities, who wanted to run for office. It's not that prejudice disappeared, but things got immeasurably better than they had been, say, before World War II or especially in the World were one errand before when there was a lot more nativism, right? And these were groups that were now speaking English and so forth. So we were coming off a half century of really, really good times for Jews and many other white-looking ethnic groups, right? But what's happening now is that a lot of those Jews who were the beneficiaries of that don't necessarily identify as Jewish anymore for various reasons having to do with lower levels of practice or their children don't identify as Jewish and so forth and so on. And an increasing number of the people who publicly present as Jewish are um, what they call ultra-Orthodox, although it's a term many people in those communities don't like because they think the ultra prefix seems demeaning. And most people right? in that class would prefer the term Haredi is their, their preferred term. Haredi, yeah. right. Exactly. So Haredi Jews, well, that's a community that's growing enormously, right? You can go to a Haredi town like Lakewood, New Jersey, and they're opening one or two elementary schools every mm -hmm. year. Like they just keep adding mm -hmm. people. And these are towns that are going to be doubling in size every several decades. The neighborhoods of Brooklyn that were containing Satmar and Lubavitcher Jews and are not big enough for mm -hmm. them anymore, which is one reason they have outposts in places like Jersey City. So I think that one of the things going on is we are at a stress point where the what you might call highly Americanized Jews are a rapidly shrinking portion of not only of the Jewish community, but what if people perceive to be the Jewish community and people who are associated with orthodoxy, which has more, which has different folkways, uh, which is often more at odds for various cultural reasons with other minority groups, and which includes, by the way, the president's uh, you know daughter and son-in-law. They would say um, is a growing proportion of American Jewry. And and that is going to cause some stress. It's that's also going to mean that a lot of- That's a fascinating of, theory, Mark. And I, I have not heard anybody make this argument before. I mean, I think this may be completely original to you. And if I understand it correctly, it's that the visibility of Haredi Jews, coupled with the increasing invisibility in some sense of Jews who are not self-identifying by their dress uh, and necessarily by the neighborhood in which they live as Jews, creates a kind of frictional or, or flashpoint. The, but the other thing I want to add is that it's not just that the Haredi Jews are becoming a more visible portion of it. It's also that on the left, as you are, I don't like those sort of binaries, but say the left end of American Jewry, you have people who have become so assimilated and so and feel so disconnected from the Haredi Jews who are bearing the brunt of a lot of these anti-Semitic attacks that they aren't necessarily standing up for them. So in other words, the gulf between an Upper West Side liberal Jew or an Upper East Side moneyed Jew and 
and a black-hatted Haredi Jew and his wife and children in Brooklyn is is extremely great right now, not just in terms of money and culture, but I also think in terms of fellow feeling and compassion. Just the gulf seems to be very, very big. I also want to point out one more thing, which is, you know, people talk about, well, you know, Joe Lieberman was almost vice president and it's what a great time to be modern Orthodox. There is almost no photograph on Google Images of Joe Lieberman wearing a yarmulke. You can find more photographs of Barack Obama wearing a yarmulke than Joe Lieberman. And it is not at all clear to me that even in America, which I think has been very good for the Jews and there's no other country I want to live in, it's not clear to me that a really Jewy presenting Jew could be a senator from an overwhelmingly Gentile state like Connecticut. Like put on a yarmulke and I don't know that Lieberman is anyone you ever would have heard of because I do think that that sense of cultural difference and, well, he doesn't look like the rest of us would kick in pretty fast for a lot of people. It's a fascinating question. To complexify it, one would want to ask hypothetically, let's imagine it were a very evangelically oriented state and it was a modern Orthodox Jew who had close ties to the evangelical community. I wonder. I think it's a it's a very hard question, but a fascinating one. Mark, I really want to want to thank you. And I also just want to say personally that the fact that you're writing a book that is focused on recovery and on the capacity of the Jewish community to be resilient, to me, says a lot about what I think of as the correct response to anti-Semitism and, and to tragedy, not to spend all of our time obsessing over that question, although we've just talked about it a lot, which is great, but to be aware also that Jews living and existing and forming life and shaping life is what has always kept the Jewish community alive and will keep the Jewish community alive no no matter if anti-Semitism continues to to exist or to rise and fall or, or not. So thank you for, for that focus. And I'm dying to read the book when it comes out. And thanks for taking us a little bit behind the scenes into your process. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Noah. Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mola Board. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern. 
and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.